Hi everyone, Evan here. In this episode, Ray Naylor and I discuss the illegal poaching of elephants and rhinoceros, so I wanted to issue an animal cruelty content warning and advise discretion to our listeners. Hello, and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Evan, and you're joining me today for a conversation with Ray Naylor, author of The Mountain in the Sea and his new novella, The Tusks of Extinction, which releases on January 15th. Ray, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Evan, thank you. Yeah, January 15th. That's uh, Today's the 10th, so it's really closing in. How are you feeling? Um, I am not as nervous as I was when The Mountain in the Sea was going to come out. I'm, uh, I'm definitely feeling a little bit calmer. It also helps and it helped back then to to be like a father and have like a full-time day job because i have a lot of <laughs> stuff i have to think about you know relying thinking, on this for your livelihood yeah i mean i would i would well i would just be going crazy right like it's it's and i don't know how full-time writers like those like people who actually manage to do this for a living full-time it actually seems like a nightmare to me to be honest like because i would be thinking about my writing all the time and like what my book was doing and like, wouldn't I just be like trolling Goodreads and like <laughs> making sure everything's okay? <laughs> yeah, just doing like horrible things to my psyche if I didn't have some kind of distraction. I'm sure there are uh, quite a few people that are listening that can relate uh, to that reality. And um, yeah, I mean, it's really, really cool that uh, that's actually one of my, my one of my questions here. And for my listeners that don't know, um, Ray has a very, very cool, lengthy uh, science background, and it seemed like you're 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 very well traveled. You've you've been part of uh, you know lots of different organizations and stuff um, with you know kind of like a focus on uh, seems like a conservation and naturalistic stuff. What what got you writing? I mean, was that always like a thing in the back of your head? Like, oh, when I start writing, my life's going to be like this, and I'll kind of I, I can't wait to get my my novel writing career off. Or or was it something where you kind of just started writing some stuff and kind of fell into writing novels alongside of the of the work that you do? I think when I was when I was 16 and I was in high school and you know just starting out and didn't have any idea what being an adult would actually be about <laughs> um and and I think you know those days where you thought like being an adult was basically like freedom right and all the other things that it's just fundamentally not I thought I was going to be a writer and uh I was really convinced that that was my future and I was going to I guess do it full time. I mean, it's hard to even say, right? Because all these thoughts were really vague. Um, Because you didn't have plans. You just sort of were, you know, drifting along like a typical sort of teen. But I kind of focused on on this idea of myself being a writer. I wrote a couple of stories and and published them in my high school magazine. People liked them. Um, I got some compliments from from folks. And I started to, to develop this idea that this was something I could do. And then I went to UC Santa Cruz and I tried to get into the creative writing program there and I got rejected. And it was it was sort of a blow, I guess. Uh, but I, I went and finished my degree in, in modern literature and I just kept I kept writing. I kept submitting things back in the day when submitting meant, you know, going to the post office with these self-addressed stomped envelopes and and on all of this and and uh, it was really much more labor intensive than than it is now. And I kind of plugging away at it, but in the meantime, I had to work. And so, you know, at first I worked a bunch of just typical jobs that you work with a degree in modern literature, which is you know, like <laughs> Kinko as a driver and like all these other sort of terrible odd jobs. And uh, and then I, and I traveled a little bit and I ended up in um, 
back in San Francisco after after coming back from Toronto and just being really depressed actually and I thought man I gotta get out of here like I need to do something with my with my life and I started looking at options for just escape and the Peace Corps was the one that seemed like the best one because there was always like the French Foreign Legion or something but I didn't want to you know go do terrible things for the French um you know in Africa what an awful awful like thing that would be so so I joined the Peace Corps and um and that set me on this path to becoming first I worked in, in international education for a while and then I became a foreign service officer I should mention that I was Peace Corps in Turkmenistan and you know, I just kept writing in the in the background of all of this. Uh, I kept kind of plugging away at it. And now I wasn't really taking it. I wasn't thinking that I was going to make a living at it, but I, I never give up my self-identity as a writer. Like, I just always thought, like, if you asked me what I was, I would have said I was a writer. And in some ways that was really freeing because, you know, a lot of my colleagues were really invested in their identity as you know, foreign service officers or or whatever, but I really wasn't. I was I was invested in my identity as a as a writer, something that I decided for myself a long time ago. And I just kept at it, um, getting up early in the morning and and writing. And uh, I got really lucky with this short story mutability that I wrote and sent off to Asimov's. Like a total fluke got published in Asimov's, and I just kept getting published in in. The, the professional magazines somehow um and and then i started writing the mountain and the sea and and then out of the blue i get an email from so i i put this complaint like tweet out right i was saying like oh, i'm about to start the process of trying to get an agent which is way harder than actually writing a book right and it's going to be terrible but i'm going to do it and like a week later i get an email from Seth Fishman, who's my agent now, saying, hey, uh, you know, a friend of mine said that you are, you wrote a book, and if you wrote a book, I should read it. And uh, and so it was, it led to this really funny situation where, where Seth like called me a few days later, trying to convince me that he was the right agent for me. And meanwhile, I'm, in the back of my head, I'm thinking like, I don't have any other options. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Seth, what do you got for me? <laughs> who, do you, who do you think I'm talking to? I'm this nobody. And yeah, it's, it just got kind of big, kind of fast. So um, I like to call it the 30-year road to overnight success. I mean, I think that the Mountain of the Sea was like really successful, but I literally wrote for 30 years before that book was published and, and pretty regularly. So I think I, I kind of surprised people because I came from left field. I was older than most debut authors, but also obviously way more experienced than most debut authors. And um and it was strange. And, you know, when, when the book got accepted, I was in Kosovo uh, on uh, my most recent overseas tour. And um, it's an, it's an odd journey. It's kind of like not repeatable, I think by anyone else, but I think that's the great thing about writers and, and all of us, right. Is that our, our sort of life like pathways are, are really not repeatable by anyone, but it's also one of the reasons why I'm like the last person when people say like, how do you become a successful writer? I'm like, I have literally no idea. <laughs> like, just I mean, besides like just stubbornly keep doing it. Yeah, hack away. Like, like hack away at it yeah. forever. Even, you know, af long after everyone else has you know, stopped thinking of you uh, as, a, as a writer, just keep plugging away at it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to hear that you had this, this, uh, this desire to be a writer 
and you were already interested in writing before you had embarked on this decades long journey that has now informed the writing that you're doing now. So yeah. it's interesting that like, maybe if you hadn't done all that, maybe if you had gotten into Santa Cruz's creative writing program, you'd be writing, but not the stuff that you're writing right now, which obviously when you read the mountain in the sea, when you read the tusks, the tusks of extinction, you can see your passion bleeding in to these stories, you know, I mean, you're writing these human stories, but also, I mean, like, I mean, the, the mountain in the sea takes place in, uh, or around uh, Ho Chi Minh, uh, or Vietnam at least. And, and it's like, how could you have written the mountain in the sea in the, in the state that it was, if you had not gone and done those things, you right. know, it's, it's really cool how, uh, there's a certain narrative symmetry to our own lives. I feel like. Yeah. I mean, I mean, retrospectively, right. I, so the, I guess the interesting thing is when I was in my 20s, and this I didn't really mention this, I, I actually did have some success with, with writing. And I, I published a, in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, and I was writing kind of crime stories. And oh, cool. you know, I, was in, I was at least in like the mentions section of the best of you know American crime a couple of times. And, and I was definitely making a little bit of a mark for myself. But then when I went and I joined the Peace Corps and then I stayed overseas because I was overseas for two decades, basically, but I stayed overseas. I couldn't submit anything because everything demanded a self-addressed stamped envelope and had to be put into like a, a U.S. mail system that I had no access to. And so the, the funny thing is that um, that initial career was kind of stopped by by my you know going abroad. But then you're right, going abroad and living outside of the United States is what informed all of my my writing now and i certainly don't don't regret a minute of it and i mean many people have pointed out that if we have a system where all writers come out of an mfa program right mm -hmm. then problematic part of that is that maybe we're missing a lot of people who have different kinds of of life experience of course and uh and maybe that is you know, that thing that made writers very different from one another might go away. We might have this just sort of much more monotone voice. Uh, I don't know if there's anything to that or not, but I certainly was never able because of the, my pathway to access things like a writer's group. I've never been a part of one, right? Um, creative writing classes. I never took one. Um, being in a creative writing program, you know, I was pretty, pretty sharply uh, rejected from, from that. So so it did make me odd uh, as a as a writer, I think, and kind of gave me at least, you know, despite myself, it's not like I was really looking for it, uh, a very different voice from any that anyone else would have, and a kind of unrepeatable set of experiences that I bring to my work that it's not possible for anyone else to copy, right? Um, because I am so different from from other um, folks who are writing in my field. It really is strange to have been. Um, out of that scene and never have been a part of it and then come into it really late. When I went to the nebulas, you know, it seemed like everyone knew everyone and I knew no one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and luckily Joe and Gay uh, Haldeman took me under their like wings and uh, and kind of showed me around like, like to the community because I, I would have been just lost at that conference. Like just sitting at right. a table by yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Totally. And I remember coming, like arriving there and being like really like kind of scared of yeah like am i supposed to be here like did they get the yeah. right guy yeah yeah exactly and people were like oh i loved your book and blah 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 you know like really welcoming but i was like i i don't know who anyone is <laughs> 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 so, 
Well, I mean, you've definitely been welcomed into the science, the science fiction community with open arms. I mean, people seem to to regard you as like an up and coming master of this genre. And I think that your more focused uh, approach with uh, you know, people are calling them eco thrillers. I don't. I think that's a nice that's a nice um, word to use, I guess. But I, I mean, I felt like the Tusks of Extinction specifically um, was more. It was much more like deep and thoughtful and intimate than a thriller really i mean like i was i was thrilled to to read it but yeah. <laughs> i wasn't like on the edge of my seat i was more sunken into my seat wanting wow. to explore more of this and I, I have a couple questions first of all could you explain to our listeners um what the tusks of extinction is about and, and what inspired you to write this story about uh, elephants and mammoths yeah so the tusks of extinction is briefly about uh, a project that, by Moscow to bring the mammoth back from extinction. And the project is failing. And so Moscow decides to basically download the mind of one of its scientists from who was murdered about a century before trying to stop elephant poaching in Africa, but is a sort of lead scientist in elephant behavior with the idea that if they can put her mind into uh, a mammoth, she might be able to help the mammoths thrive. Um, so one of the things that it's maybe a, a something that's worth explaining about the science behind de-extinction is that you can't bring a species back. In fact, what you have to do is create a new species that has the DNA of that species, but that's carried by another animal similar to it and carries its DNA. So if we bring back the mammoth, it's not going to be like the mammoths were before. It'll be a new thing that has a lot of the qualities that a mammoth has, but it'll be part elephant, in fact, because we would have to use surrogate elephant mothers to carry them. And for a lot of other, other reasons, this is not going to be an identical thing. So these creatures are not thriving. They bring Demira back, but Demira has a sort of dark you know, past of, of her own and a lot of resentment around the things that happened to elephants when she was alive. And um, I sort of thought of this as... Um, an opportunity to explore some things that I was really interested in, and then also an opportunity to express some of my own frustration with things that were going on in the world, but also just a, a, a study in memory. So I really was interested in exploring the idea of memory, which I think is just fundamental to, to us as, as humans and probably to, you know, much of the, of the animal kingdom. Uh, and this was, a way for me to explore memory kind of as a metaphor, as a scientific, you know, idea and these things. Also a way to explore how our bodies and our minds are connected. So, you know, Demira finds herself in the, in the body of a mammoth and quite quickly starts to change mm -hmm. and become very different from what she was as a, as a human being. And then when I was, um, when I was in Ho Chi Minh, as the environment science technology and health officer, I worked some on uh, on the ivory uh, trafficking and ivory smuggling and on rhino horn trafficking. And um, so the mountain in the sea was based on my experience working in, in conservation on, on the Condal archipelago. And it was wonderful experience. I cannot say that working on ivory trafficking and rhino horn was a wonderful experience at all. And I was just exposed to a lot of terrible uh, images and um, and a lot of frustration around this kind of the unstoppable force of poaching 
and and all of the interests that were keeping uh, elephants being slaughtered. This was sort of at the peak, uh, where at one point I think something like forty thousand elephants were killed in a year uh, in Africa. I mean, it was just this massive butchery, right? And so I I do think that in some ways the tusks of extinction was a way of kind of expressing some of the horror uh, at that. Um, but a book is never, I'm sure you you have the same experience. Like a book is never really about one thing. It's kind of this dovetailing of these different ideas and then it becomes something rich enough to become a book. Like it, it can't just be about one thing. It can't be about, you know, elephant uh, poaching. It can't be just about de-extinction. Uh, can't be just about memory. It's got to be somehow about all of those things and how they interact. And, and I, I, so I think what I try to do in general as a writer is put myself in a really small box. So the reason that I write what looks maybe to some people like hard science fiction is just because I'm trying to contain myself in as close to realism as I as I can. And that's just because that's where I write best. Some people write like Jack Vance, right, would write best when he was coming up with bizarre alien civilization way out there right as far out as you can go yeah that's not me and i i I can't write well that way um i guess we all we all sort of have our skill set and mine seems to really be you know if i'm contained within a small space and i'm pushing up against these like real boundaries that i'm able to create something you know you just mentioned dovetailing and you know you're spinning all kinds of plates here uh, you managed to, to cram it all into a, a book that's less than 100 pages long which i commend you for i mean it, it, there's really like no fat on this book it's just it's excellent i would really recommend it to everybody that's listening here uh i really loved how you bounced around with points of view in this book too like this isn't just demira's point of view you've got a few working brains here uh you showcase the obvious horrors of poaching um and in, in a very, very clever way, I'll say, and I don't want to spoil anything, but you're, you're in a clever way, you're, you're dropping us more to the minds of the animals being poached as well. Uh, but you also managed, there's a, there's a nuanced side character uh, uh, who feels that the poaching is necessary to an extent. Um, and I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not claiming for you that you, this is what your stance was, but it is, I am curious, like, what was your goal in showing this other side of the story here? It's been my experience. And, and largely this, I think, is from a lifetime of dealing with, with people in other, in other cultures and in cross-cultural communication, which can be really difficult, mostly because you just you usually feel very uh, ignorant yourself. Sure. Um, and uh, and it's, it, it's, very, it's very hard when you're not sure what the thing you're saying, how, the, how what you're saying is coming across. You don't have that, that grounding uh you know in culture i can give you you know an example if you say to a turkman for for example i don't get along very well with my mother what an american would hear right is okay like you know this is a pretty typical thing um even people who don't know each other that well will talk to to each other sometimes about their their childhood their parental relationships it might be a little bit of oversharing but you know it's no big deal and they might be interested in what you said next you said that to a Turkman, what the Turkman would would hear is, you know, this person can't be trusted because they don't understand the basics of family loyalty, the, the like values that are that are that are important. Um, anyone who would violate the relationship between a child and a mother and tell a stranger or an acquaintance or a friend sure. about 
family's business is someone that you would want nothing to do with. And I can almost guarantee that that Turkmen would seek to avoid you in the future. You said that to them. I think what I wanted to come at is this idea that no one, almost nobody on this earth does evil things that they actually believe are evil. The vast majority of people are doing things which might be really evil things because they believe those things are necessary or good or justifiable in, in some way. The and the yeah, the, the character you're talking about is not an evil person. And I I mean I would argue that and it's like, you know, spoiler alert, but and it's not really a spoiler. There are no evil people in mm-hmm. the tusks of extinction. No, I never got that feeling really. No. Yeah. Yeah. There really are no doing what they need to do. Yeah, everyone is doing what they need to do, what they've been funneled into doing by life and their experiences, what they've been driven to do, um, what has been sort of the role that has been assigned to them, whether they like it or not, right? And people are pushed into those roles. And I really dislike writing villains because I feel like it does us a bit of an intellectual disservice. This idea that people just do things that are evil in order to be evil um, is, is an easy way out. The thing we ought to be probably thinking about more is like, why are there systems that are creating these like evil, you know, actions driving people to perform them? It's almost like the systems are deterministic. It's like this almost, there's a certain, I feel like banality to some of these systemic like injustices, you know, like especially with the animal kingdom who are, are, are a, uh, an an oppressed class almost that can't defend themselves you know um, i mean yeah. elephants to a certain extent can defend themselves in maybe some circumstances because they're right. huge but i mean if you're shooting at them from 100 yards away uh, there's right. not a whole lot an elephant can do um, right. but i i really did i i, I thought that might have been the answer that you were going for and i'm, I'm glad that it is because it's very interesting you know to to explore um you know the the systems that allow for these kinds of things that are happening because I, I wanted to ask you too, very much related to this. And since you do know a little bit about this, what's the deal with ivory and rhino horns? Like what is it, is it purely like a luxury thing? Is it, what's, why is the market so intense around ivory and, and rhino horns? It's bizarre, right? It's, it's, it's like, so rhino horn in particular is a really weird one because rhino horn is just keratin. Like it's, oh. it's simply keratin, nothing else. The, the rhino's horn is actually just hair. And oh. so it has, it's not, it's yeah, weird, right? I mean, it's not even like a tooth or anything. It's, it's simply hair. And so it's, it's made of keratin. It has no special qualities, but there are people who think that it cures cancer uh, and all sorts of other ailments and uh, inevitably is good for male virility because right it's a horn and so that resembles other stuff and you know it's a a very common uh, idea that you can you can take this and it will you know help you with like sexual dysfunction etc so that has driven the trade in in rhino horn that those just weird medicinal ideas and as far as elephant ivory i mean it's bizarre it's it's certainly a like a it has a beauty to it um sure. you know i've seen things carved from ivory that are that are really quite striking um but it's it's not that much more beautiful than say bone in general or, or other Marble. things so i think it, yeah i mean they have these 
like fetishistic qualities to them, right? But they are being, they're basically, they're incredibly valuable because of something they're not. It's like the Maltese Falcon, right? In a sense, right? Everybody's like chasing after the Maltese Falcon, but the Maltese Falcon isn't anything important. It's just something to chase after, something to desire. And I think elephant ivory has been for humankind a lot like that, a little bit like gold, right? Yeah. Um, there's this um, Seamus Haney translated Beowulf, and he said about Beowulf that that gold runs through Beowulf like sex runs through many modern books, right? Oh, <laughs> I see. Yeah, this it's like, like enticing, this, yeah, yeah. This 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 passion, this like desire okay. for gold, this like constant sort of. But the gold is, is also just a fetish object, right? It's it's really of of no or very little intrinsic. Uh, value. I mean, we can um, use gold as like a superconductor, right? Isn't that like sure. one of the, but that's really, I mean, that's like barely a reason to covet it the way that we have. Right. Like when in, right. in Beowulf or in, in lots of other stories, it's not like they're looking for El Dorado because they need to power their semiconductors. You know, it's, it's just yeah. a fetishistic thing. So yeah. With, yeah. with rhino horn and, and elephant ivory, it seems like uh, even less, you know, there, it really is like, there's not, much you can really do with it except for have it you just have it's purely it. yeah it's purely empty and and the enormity of the suffering that's caused by by trades right compared to the emptiness and the worthlessness of what is taken from these animals right i mean there's been a lot of argument in in africa for example the the other you know, there have been ideas to just go out for example and dehorn uh rhinos so that they won't be poached uh, or to maybe just just uh tranquilize elephants and take their tusks you know so that they so that they'll be less vulnerable to to this meaningless um predation right so yeah it's i, I mean it's the classic kind of commodity fetish right it's mm -hmm. this thing that is that has a value that that is not intrinsic to itself but that has to do with status and and um and people's fantasy lives um and it's uh it's really it's it's really just such a gigantic tragedy right um that it just happens to also be about killing two of the biggest beautiful you know most sort of striking animals in, in but i mean uh, yeah there is this kind of line this you know through the tests of extinction that that links it to other ideas of kind of just extractive sure capitalism right this idea that we can just take and take and take from from uh from the world and we're sort of locked into that right now i feel like with like rare earths oh, yeah. right and all, and all of that that stuff too which is you know again you kind of ask yourself like how much <laughs> how much more do we need right the, the people that are uh poaching these elephants um are if correct me if i'm wrong but they're either uh rich people who have the money to uh, and you explore that a little bit in your in this book as well like the ultra wealthy who uh have the means to be able to to go on these expeditions or they're they're people that live in these areas who because yeah. rich people want the this stuff now uh, kind of back to talking about the the systems in place that allow for this kind of suffering you know it's like mm -hmm. I, I almost want to make it clear and hope i hope I'm right here. It's not like 
a bunch of crazy African people are out here slaughtering a bunch of elephants. It's like, that's not what right. this is. Like it's, it's, a, there no. are, there are greedy systems in place, mostly on an international level uh, from people that are outside yeah. of these communities uh, that are yes. coming in and, and <laughs> disrupting all of this. So am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. So the, so the locus, right. Of the, um, the ivory trade is not in Africa. Sure. Right. The the end the end of these routes through which ivory is is transferred and 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 shipped and and worked are in uh, in China uh, and in the West and sort of all over, mostly outside of the place where the suffering is is occurring. So largely, Africa is what Africa has been uh, for a long time, uh, for, you know, in this uh, sort of colonial and post-colonial era, it's an extraction zone. Sure. Right. Cobalt where, the where, Congo, yeah. Diamonds. Yeah. A colonial extraction zone. Right. And the, and the people who are doing the poaching are, are largely going to be, uh, locals who are driven into doing that because there are no other better opportunities. Right. right. That's how someone gets, gets into that, which yeah, is also business. a consequence of the colonialism that, you know, it's like this big right. giant, like, like cycle, this horrible, like yes. tornado that's yeah. like racking in there. And then I think that maybe, exactly. uh, yeah, I just didn't want to give the wrong impression that I was like, wow, all these Africans that uh, out here killing all mm -hmm. these elephants. Like, no, that's not what it is. No, I, and, and I think, I, you know, it's so at one point when I was in Vietnam, Elephant ivory had become so valuable that there was a, a, a basically like a, a, a mafia whose whole existence was was based around hiring a someone, quite often a like a prostitute, right, to go to Africa on a big game hunt and kill an elephant. And then legally, legally, because this is not poaching, you can still, um, you know, if you're rich and you pay enough, right. you can go and hunt an elephant in Africa legally. So go and kill the elephant and then legally take the trophy back with them where the, the tusks would then be trafficked to some other area, right? So they had even undermined the system of big game hunting uh, and and sort of twisted it into a different kind of poaching. And I, I mean, I there I, I leaf through pictures of these women, stand, you know, because they take these trophy shots, right, mm -hmm. standing next to these like dead elephants. And this, what's really striking quite often about this picture is here is an exploited person, mm -hmm. right, often trafficked themselves. Now in the position of having like been involved in the killing of this magnificent you know, animal in order to further exploit nature and give more money to the Jeez. same kinds of people that, you know, trafficked and exploited her. What a nightmare. Right. An absolute nightmare, right? And so, and you actually saw where like human trafficking and elephant poaching and all of these horrible things kind of met, right? All of it dri driven by greed, and so I think I think in the test of extinction there is this like underlying current of, of anger and people have like pointed it out. Oh yeah, I felt it for sure. And that's really where it comes from, is is you know, the it's the real world stuff. I mean, there's nothing more awful than 
an exploited human being being further used to destroy uh things on on earth right and drive yet more useless like money and useless trade and in, in objects just so that people with lots of money can have more of it too yeah so that's like that that's the ultimate the yeah. ultimate horrible like sickening aspect to all of it it's just like these people have the world and they want to cut it up even more for themselves you know and it's just like yeah. the, the the it's almost like they get off on the damage they're doing you know like yeah they're, they're just like ah how can i do it in the worst possible way <laughs> you know yeah I, I feel i feel like that but i feel like at each, I, I feel like if you examined it then like at each level of the system there's some way in which a lot of the people are trapped and that's something right. i kind of yeah. got into the mountain in the sea where you know you have this ai ship right and they have the slaves who are working on this ai fishing vessel but then you have the guards of the slaves who are also in a sense just trapped in the same yeah. system like they might kind of be like rank above but it's a little bit like under colonialism you had you certainly had people from the local population who made their way or found a way to benefit from colonialism but that doesn't mean that you weren't trapped within the same exploitative systems and actually suffering from them even if they were you know able to rise into the middle classes it comes at a cost and I think that everywhere along these uh, sort of loops, right, it comes at a large cost, whether it's a cost in direct suffering, like poverty, things like that, or whether, whether it's just like the price you pay with like your, you know, spirit, right? Like your ability to like think of yourself as a good person anymore. Like the just being around this trade degrades people. That is a that is an endlessly fascinating and and very sad subject, and it's really cool to see how again in only in only a hundred pages you've you've been able to extract so much emotion um, and and really kind of communicate your your feelings and your frustrations uh, through like a really human story. It feels so sincere to read this. Um, I wanted to shift over toward uh, the idea of de-extinction. And I had a question, um, you kind of covered it a little bit earlier, but um, I don't know if I'm just like rehashing this statement that you had made earlier, but are there uh, natural like consequences to bringing these extinct animals back? Like obviously in this book, we're dealing with uh, poachers and that is an issue. Um, but like with, with these animals that have been forced out, out of their ecosystems by us, uh, or naturally, I guess, I'm sure it's happened also the without human intervention, but introducing these these creatures back into their into ecosystems, have these ecosystems moved past the previous symbiosis that had existed when they were a part of it? And is that why they can't be reintroduced the same way? Or is it is it more of a biological thing that they can't be reintroduced the same way? I think it I think it depends on the species. I mean there's there's some big challenges with de-extinction in the the sense that you can't really bring the species back, right? You have to have this kind of analog that you create partially through kind of patching together what you can find of the species DNA and also through surrogacy and these other, other methods. But, but I think you hit on something that's really important, which is like, it's a species is not really a complete entity. No. It has to have a niche in a world of other species. Many, many of those are also gone. And so, you know, a good example would be, I mean, it's not just about the woolly mammoth, right? It's also about the, the, the bear that used to be there, the sloth, the rhinoceros, the, the other animals that were um, its predators, the, the plant 
set at eight, et cetera. Now, now luckily with the with the woolly mammoth, you're in relatively recent time. Right. Like eight thousand years or something like that. Yeah. So so you're not really looking at you're looking at an animal that modern humans hunted to extinction, most likely, right? Like people who are who are physically identical to us and and most likely completely identical in uh, all of their capacities, right? Hunted to extinction. So people who would have had the same brains that we had and the and the the same um same general capacities as a, as a modern human minus some of our technologies, right? So we're not that far back in time, but still like symbiosis is is it, right? Like there is this question of like, well, okay, so you bring this one animal back, but what about the rest of that world? Like how, you know, and how is that animal supposed to sort of survive in this very changed environment? Another problem would be, you know, with de-extinction that it largely focuses on big charismatic animals Mm -hmm. uh, to the expense of insects and other parts of the of the food web that you know that these would have been a part of those worlds um that may have changed over the years i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of focus on the on the the woolly mammoth in particular and i think that's also because it has we have a lot of good access to its dna um since a lot of them are frozen in, in permafrost but they're really we are lacking question of like how do you replace that whole world the animal lived in? And then I think the other question that people are not asking themselves enough and kind of needs to be asked more about everything that we do is why are we doing this? If we can put all this money into de-extinction, how about putting this money into not having extinctions, right? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not allowing animals to become extinct in the first place or reintroducing animals that we much more recently were responsible for for killing off um you know i j- just recently i read an article that, that basically confirmed uh what i think most people already knew to be true which is that, that um, indeed most of the large mammals that have gone extinct have gone extinct because they've been hunted into extinction that's a, you know all over the world um, we human beings are are responsible over the last tens several tens of thousands of years for killing off you know pretty much everyone remember that north america had horses right and then didn't anymore and had camels and then didn't um so uh, you know human beings did that uh and certainly did for the mastodon you know and and uh, probably the giant sloth and, and lots of other animals so why don't we focus then on going back in time 10 or 15 years and replacing some of the bird species and, you know, uh, 20 years and 30 years and trying to undo some of the, the, the things that we've done um, most recently. And I think maybe intellectually for some people, that's just not interesting enough. And then it's also not where the money is. Um, but uh, that's one of those things. I, I mean, I react sometimes to, to some of the innovations that we come up with, with like, well, thank God we didn't cure cancer or something, right? I mean, <laughs> thank God we have this instead, you know, whatever dumb new yeah. thing it is that we have, right? Instead of like something important. And that sound, that that seems to sound increasingly, increasingly old-fashioned, um, the idea that we ought to have ethics or, or values and not just allow the market to determine what we do, right? It, I mean, it's funny. I feel like we've been having this conversation for like, at least 30 years. I mean, when Jurassic Park came out, it, it, it raised all kinds. And, and I, you know, 
I'm not trying to minimalize the conversation with a with a with Jurassic Park, but I think that there I mean there really is so much to pull out of that that idea of yeah. like, you know, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Uh yeah. I mean that's like such a brilliant line in in that book and in that movie um yeah. by somebody who like I mean the character that says that is somebody who has studied in the ways that nature is able to break away from uh humans trying to corral it i mean there is like that sort of kind of like ethical argument of like well you know i mean what what did the what did the the old guy in jurassic park say like how can we stand on the on the brink of discovery and not act like what a right. gaslighting right. like what, what a horrible <laughs> thing to say like like what look at how exciting this is how could we not do this you know and it's like well no um, there are so many consequences to yeah. us acting so rashly, and I. But I wondered, like, so, like you know, I mean, with introducing these new species and stuff, I mean, it would almost have to like be this sort of like unexciting venture, almost where it's like, no, we're not bringing back woolly mammoths yet. We have to bring back this species of bird first, so that we can, you know, and it's like that's not going to get as many headlines. You know, so it almost feels right. like we would just be like, all right, we're going for mammoths because they're huge and they're cuddly. They look like Snuffleupagus. Like right. we're like we're gonna have mammoth T-shirts and we're gonna make a mammoth video game and you know we're gonna slap it yeah. on lunchbox and now you're selling it. Most science seems to be not very exciting. Like most of it is just like grunt work. Most of it is uh, you know writing these long papers that have so much abstract in them and and it's just like. But that's where the rubber's really meeting the road over like long periods of time where it's not as exciting, right? I mean, I think that one the you you, you totally pointed out like that that guy, the guy in Jurassic Park saying, you know, how can we stand on the brink <laughs> and not act or what you know, I forget the exact line as well, but like that's the same thing that all these Silicon Valley hucksters are saying. <laughs> We're about making the AI, world a better place. You know, right? Yeah. Totally. You know, it's just like we're all we're it's exactly the same thing. Um over and over again uh, i i think that what's what's really missing is um is ethics in these things like it's it it's really about what are we capable of and why should we do it and if we should then you know what impact is it going to have and we need to just start thinking a little bit into the future i've suggested in an article i, I did for the new scientist that um, we needed parliaments of the future to legislate, um, you know, the possible inventions 10 sure. and 20 years from now. So we'd be ready for them to come into the world. Cause what quite often happens is things like AI seem to come out of nowhere and we don't have any of the copyright law in place to, to deal with those things um, when we could have, and we saw that we were getting here, but there's things, you know, there's this even more sort of, dystopic things happening you have for example uh people with people who were blind and then they got eye implants that helped them to see brain implants that actually helped that help them to see and then those brain implants were were uh created by these companies that went bankrupt the patents were sold and now those people can't get updates to their brain implants which will and they're going to go blind again right this is like a real thing right so who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> Who thought it was okay to put implants in people and give them sight and then just take it away because a, because a company happens to go 
bankrupt. Like they where need to be updated. The, yeah. Like what yeah. what would you, you know, why aren't we thinking a little bit more about what the effect is on on people? And I think, you know, part of the reason is because for some reason, it's just always the middleman making these decisions. And it's not the it's not the grunt scientist in the lab doing the work. It's not the um, the artist, you know, it's not the the screenwriter. It's not the it's not the any of those people who are actually doing you know work. And I include in that, say, you know, the director, the producer, like all sure. all of the important people doing important cool stuff. It's the ones holding the purse and the salesman somehow, right? The salespeople who are are making the decisions about what we should and shouldn't do. Um, with products and it's the same thing with AI, right? I think AI is actually so-called AI, right? Machine learning has huge capacity and, and could be used in really interesting ways. And oh, artists we've already do- seen it. Yeah. 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 It's awesome. But like, it shouldn't be used to just put people out of work. <laughs> Technology is a little bit like genes, right? Like there's this argument that like they're, that the organism, right. Is the thing that reproduces. And there's another argument that it's genes that actually reproduce themselves. Right. Um, and I think neither one of these arguments is, is wholly correct, but technology is a little bit like a gene in the sense that it's always evolving and pushing its way forward. And it's going to get, you know, it's, it's, it is this force that is going to happen. It's not like you can stop it. So instead you should be thinking about, you know, what are the ethical implications? Like what are the the things that are going to happen to people? How can you create a world where the, where this technology is good for human thriving and for the th- thriving of the ecosystems that we live in. And I just think that's a really valid question. And you shouldn't sound like a hippie or, a, you know, no. like, or anything else when you say like, what is this technology's purpose? And is that purpose good? Does it contribute to human thriving? And is it good for this planet? And if so, great. And if not, how can we change the system, right? or create some kind of safeguard so that this is good for human thriving. And there's all sorts of ways to, to deal with technology with the eye implants, right? Someone simply could have said, all of this has to be open source. Sure. You can't sell patents for anything that goes inside a human body. Right. Mm. <laughs> like if you go bankrupt, everything has to become open source, like something like that. Any of sure. those things would have been acceptable instead of people like literally on, on chat rooms trying to salvage parts for their eye implants. Oh my god, that is so disgusting. Jeez. This is not necessary. It doesn't have to be like that, right? Well, it's interesting because like to to your point about like not sounding like a hippie, I'm fine with like working within the bounds of certain um like paradigms that we have. You know what I mean? Like I'm not like I'm not so idealistic to think that we can just like throw out all of our systems overnight and just give everybody right. a bunch of money and so it, it's like no, but there are certain approaches we can take, like um, like think about like um seatbelts in cars, right? Sure. Like when we hit, when we first had cars, uh, we told these car companies you have to put seatbelts in your cars, and these car companies were like, "Fuck that! Like, what you're gonna make us like pay a bunch of money to put these things in? Well, they don't need them. Like, what are you talking about?" But like also, the reason that seatbelts are good is obviously because like on the surface they save people's lives. That's awesome. Also these insurance companies don't have to keep doling out money every time somebody dies in a car accident, right? Like, I mean, right. there there is a certain kind of like technological and societal symbiosis here too, and a capital symbiosis that we can, that we can have. And I, and I feel like there's just so much rhetoric that I feel maybe being pushed by corporations that's just kind of like, well, no, we can't do that because then 
socialism bad and it's like well right <laughs> maybe it's a little more complicated than that though man like maybe like maybe we can work within certain parameters which allow for just not just not quite as much horrific shit you know what i mean <laughs> yeah no I, I completely get it and i mean um it's a little bit i kind of i was having another conversation where i was sort of calling it like the new realism right like like part of it is just actually looking at the world as it really is and and you know part of the new realism i think would be asking yourself like this question and i think you know my generation and certainly the baby boomers should be asking themselves this question are we being good ancestors because there will be people in a thousand years on this planet i believe that i'm an, i'm 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 an optimist you know and, uh, and 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 what i would like to know is how are they going to see us are we doing the right thing are we being good ancestors the kind of people you would respect I mean, I think like on a on a local level, if they can, if anthropologists can study the way that most people lived day to day, I think a lot of I think a lot of people in a thousand years would be like, man, those people were really cool. They were making all kinds of art. They were funny. Like they were making each other laugh constantly. They 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 developed a way of communicating with each other that hadn't been thought of for thousands of years before they had done it. Um, but then also, yeah. I think in, on a macro level, they're going to be like, those people were insane. Like those people were absolutely out of their minds. Like, and it, and it's, it's funny because the macro level is also a yeah. micro level of a certain few people that are making a certain few decisions, which looks like the macro, but like the real, <laughs> I feel like most people are like, why are you guys doing that? <laughs> like if you showed somebody a cobalt yeah. mine in Africa, mo like 99% of people would be like, that right. is really messed up. Like what the hell is going on? Like why well, I had no idea it was that bad. So to kind of shift gears just a little bit here, um, I'm curious about your writing process. Uh, do you outline your stories? Uh, do you write every day? Do you have like a, a schedule that you keep? I mean, I know you have another job and everything. Yeah. What's that like? I try to write most days. So I get up in the morning uh, before the rest of my family gets up and I try to get like an hour, or an hour and a half in if I can, uh, most days. But I don't do it if I'm particularly tired and I, I don't write, for example, on the weekends in the morning. I try to give myself a little bit of like headspace. Then I keep a notebook uh, during the day when so when I get ideas, I can jot them down. And that's pretty much it for like the, the sort of organizational part of the process. Um, with the mountain and the sea, I was trying to chart out chapters about five chapters ahead in like basic ideas. I would have like a paragraph for each chapter that just said, okay, now this happens, this happens, and this happens. With the Tusk of Extinction, it was a little bit different because I actually sold the book on a synopsis. Oh. And so I actually wrote the synopsis first. And then I was like, oh, this is going to be really weird because I have <laughs> never done this before. And, um, yeah, and it worked yeah. out really well. So I wish I could like recreate that. But I don't think I, I don't think I'll be able to because um, I just this idea I had more complete and fleshed out in my head for some reason. So synopsis was was writable, but like I would never have been able to write a synopsis for the mountain and the sea. So my process is kind of whatever it is in, in that like phase of my writing like existence, but it changes all the time. Uh, what advice would you give to anyone who would like to become more involved with like earth science, conservation, Peace Corps efforts, uh, things like that? Maybe someone who isn't in college for it or um, like maybe not currently working with a big organization like like the layman, you know, like what could the everyday person do? I mean, I think that. Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think a good place to start is like just to go down to like, like the Natural History Museum and start 
you know, really looking at some of like, I think some of the best learning I've done is just looking at some of the like displays in, in natural history museums and kind of the, the stuff that goes along with like how those scientists and uh, and folks are trying to communicate and just trying to learn a little bit more about the world. And then just reading things like Ed Yong has this book, um, forget what it's, uh, An Immense World, I think, about, uh, about animal um, communications and, and animal perception of the world, which deals with a lot of the things that I dealt with in The Mountain and the Sea. And I didn't read this book while I was writing The Mountain and the Sea, but I, it probably would have saved me some time because we clearly have a lot of the same primary sources. But I think there's just, it's about self-education. And then I think it's just about taking a moment to think about where things go. Like I'm, you know, and and, and what happens with, like what the consequences of, of things are, right? Like a really good example is just like, not necessarily going to the store and buying no, nothing, you know, with plastic in its packaging, but like just like thinking about like why, Mm. is everything structured in such a way that like organic foods are in plastic bags sure right and how can we just start thinking in a different way i mean i think it's just about awareness um but i think another part of that awareness is being aware of systems you know uh and how corporate systems are responsible for the vast majority of all this waste and it's not going to get solved by us like recycling better no right that, that's a that's shifting the blame onto us yeah 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 which I mean, recycling is cool, for yeah, sure. Like it's not to say, but it's like there's a there's many um, solutions with many holes in them that stack up to make uh, a regular good solution. You know, the exactly. Swiss cheese yeah. effect is what I've heard it called. Totally. Totally. Um, and my last question here: uh, so you're writing in science fiction. Um, what would you like to see more of in the science fiction genre? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I I think I just want to see the science fiction genre be open to whatever is being being written and is good rather than following uh, in too many trends and people trying to do things uh, that other people have already done. I think um, the more we can increase our originality, the better off we'll be. And I think that what that takes is an adventurous reader, but adventurous readers are fueled by adventurous publishers. And uh, and so I just like to see, as in all things, and it's like, I'm not saying that science fiction doesn't have enough variety. I'm just saying, like, as in all things, I'd like to see more diversity and more variety. It also creates a more resilient genre. The, you know, um, diversity and resilience are closely linked. And so I think that, that science fiction will survive into the future if it's doing many things, you know, at once. And many, many voices are being heard, as many new voices as we can get. Yeah, I mean, I think you're a very good example of how uh, a different lived experience can create uh, a product that's very that's really uh, interesting and, and really captivating and, and means a lot. You know, I mean, you, you've you've written a really meaningful book, not just to yourself, but to, I'm sure when people read this, uh, it'll be meaningful to them too. That's a hell of an achievement, man. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, but that's gonna do it for us today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode between me and uh, and Ray Naylor. Uh, Ray, uh, let me know when you got something else coming out, and we'd love to have you back on here. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Evan. Right, everybody, again, thank you so much for listening. I uh, hope you have an awesome rest of your day. And of course, happy reading.